0: Boys and girls, dear congregation, we have learned so far that the Gospel of Matthew doesn't just begin with a list of names, which we call a genealogy. And so what we have in those 17 verses, we have 42 generations that bring us to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we have learned so far is that it's very deliberate that Matthew, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, begins the New Testament with that genealogy. In verse 1, we read the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that brings us to verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are forty generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. And so the genealogy shows us that the Lord Jesus Christ was indeed a son of Abraham, that he was a son of David, And so this genealogy confirms to us that God has kept his word. He has remembered his covenant. But We've also seen that this genealogy is nothing to be proud of. That this genealogy is stained with sin. If we carefully examine each of the entries, there is sin everywhere. And the beauty of it all is, as we have seen, that even in this way, Christ has totally identified himself with sinners. That even when it comes to his genealogy, he has made himself of no reputation. And he is not ashamed. He was not ashamed. He is the author of his own word. He was not ashamed to be publicly aligned with this genealogy. And so what we are focusing on is the four women in this genealogy, the four women who each in their own unique way became the mothers of Christ, four women who were the most unlikely candidates to be included in this genealogy, Tamar. Canaanitish girl who seduced her father-in-law in order to have a son named Phares. And last week we focused on, on Rahab the harlot. A harlot in Jericho. Who would have ever thought that Rahab the harlot was eternally chosen by God to be the mother of his son, according to the flesh. And yet so it was. And so this morning we're going to focus on the third of those four women. And next week, the Lord willing, we will focus on Bathsheba, who is the fourth woman mentioned here in this genealogy. And so we read in verse 5 of Matthew, And Solomon begot Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse then, of course, begat David the king. And so we're going to focus on Ruth. And so what I'm going to try to do, it's a tall order, but I'm going to try to give you a birds eye view of the entire book of Ruth and to, to address some overarching themes about this woman called Ruth, which means, of course, that I cannot possibly address every single significant detail in the book of Ruth, and there are many, and hopefully in the future there will be an opportunity that we can work our way through this book one passage at a time. And so I want to focus on verses 10, 13, and 17 of chapter 4. So in your Bibles, turn to Ruth 4, and let me read verses 10, 13, and 17. And there we have God's Word in our text. Moreover, Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. Verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And verse 17, And the women, her neighbors, gave it Or him a name, saying there is a son born to Naomi, and he called his name Obed, for he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. So Ruth, the mother of Christ, first of all, Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi, is through marriage that she became connected to Naomi. Secondly, Ruth the wife of Boaz, of which we just read, and thirdly, Ruth, the mother of Obed. First of all then, Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi. What's striking, congregation, that the book of Ruth begins with sin and judgment. It begins with a set of circumstances that would have rendered it extremely unlikely that the book would end the way it did. It's also interesting that the book of Judges, which comes before Ruth, ends by telling us that there was no king in Israel and that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And so this history... Place during that period, the period of the judges. And so Ruth begins in that setting. There was no king in Israel. And what's amazing, that it ends with the name of David, the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart. And so it is a story that begins in sin, And it ends with an extraordinary statement of God's amazing grace demonstrated also in this story. It begins by telling us about a family that lived in Bethlehem, Judah. A family, perhaps a family of some means, but a family relatively unknown. Living in Bethlehem, a very small town in Bethlehem, Judah. A rather insignificant in Micah 5 verse 2, But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah. There lived a family. The family of Elimelech. A Wonderful name. God is my king. Married to Naomi. A wonderful name. It means pleasantness. They had two boys, and their names seemed to indicate they may have had some weakness that was evident from birth, but whatever it may be. And the circumstances were so dire that Elimelech and Naomi thought it would be in the best interest of their family to remove temporarily from the land of Israel and temporarily sojourn in the land of Moab. And it's very obvious that, that was a fateful decision. They reasoned with flesh and blood because their only concern was their temporal welfare, their temporal well-being. And they failed to consider that by moving to Moab, they would remove themselves from the presence of the Lord. They would remove themselves from the congregation of the Lord they would dwell in a land in which they would be surrounded by those who worship the wicked idol of Chemosh the god of the Moabites and of course that in itself has some very practical application that i cannot go into but let me just quickly say this what a lesson it is for us also as parents and grandparents that we make decisions about our children about our families that we are to be concerned first and foremost about their spiritual well-being and the spiritual well-being of our families. And we know that the consequences were grievous because it doesn't take very long, and Elimelech dies. Now Naomi is a widow. And then to make matters worse is... Her two sons marry Moabitish girls. Now, we have reason to believe that Naomi was a God-fearing woman who must have grieved over this. And the reason I can say that with confidence that she was a God-fearing woman is because she evidently, profoundly impacted Ruth the Moabitess, who as we will see in a moment, makes this amazing confession based on what she no doubt had learned from Naomi with whom she dwelt. Naomi who stayed in Moab for 10 years. God had forbidden the marriage of His people with those of foreign lands. Deuteronomy 7 verse 3, Neither shalt thou make marriages with them And we know that Ezra is so troubled that when the people of Israel have returned from Babylon, that they again engage in the same sin that had led to idolatry. And so Ezra, the priest, stood up, Ezra 10, verse 10, and said unto them, Ye have transgressed and have taken strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel. And then those two boys become ill. And they pass away. And so now Naomi has nothing anymore. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. And she's left with her two daughters-in-law. And so this is a confirmation, is it not, of what we read in Proverbs 14, verse 12... There is a way which seemeth right unto a man. It seemed right to Elimelech and to Naomi. But the end thereof are the ways of death. How often that has been confirmed in history. But then something happens. Something remarkable happens. Naomi hears somehow. Somehow she hears that God has visited His people. Somehow, she hears that God has visited His people with bread. And that really revives in her an intense yearning to return to her land, even though it would be difficult to return. She would return as a widow, utterly bereft of everything. And her daughters-in-law had grown so fond of her that they said, but we are going with you. We will join you. We will come with you and return to the land of Israel. Now we know that as they approached the border, that Naomi really pleads with their daughters not to come along with them pleads with them to return to their families, to their home. And why was it? Well, Naomi knew that there was no future for Moabitish girls. By the way, boys and girls, Moab, the Moabites, were the descendants of Lot. Remember, Lot was a nephew of Abraham. They were the descendants of Lot, and so were the Ammonites. But there was a special curse upon the Ammonites and the Moabites. Both Ammon and Moab were born under very, very sinful circumstances. So what do we read in Deuteronomy 23, verse 3? It says, an Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. And so the Omar said, girls, there is no future for you in Israel. Even if I were to be able to give birth to another son, and you'd be willing to wait for that son to grow up and marry him, but that's not going to happen. I am beyond that stage. But also, she knew very well that those Moabitish girls would have no place within the congregation of the Lord. And it becomes a very... Emotional moment. We read about Orpah. Orpah, who was weeping. Orpah, who evidently loved Naomi, felt attached to Naomi. But when she listened to her mother-in-law, she made the decision that she did not want to risk a future in which there would be no marriage for her, a future in which she would never be part of the people of Israel. And then a weeping Orpah, a weeping Orpah who had come so close to the border of Israel, a weeping Orpah returns, and it's it's so telling what Scripture says, returns to her people and returns to her gods. So Orpah, Orpah is the illustration of those who go along with God's people up to a point, as long as it doesn't require any self-denial or sacrifice, who run along for a season. It's like the rich young ruler. When Christ confronted him with the true claims of his kingdom, we read that he went away sorrowful. And like Demas, of whom Paul says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Peter writes of this in 2 Peter 2 verse 22. The dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. God forbid that any of us are Orpas, going along, Appearing to care for God's people, I mean, Orpah no doubt felt a real attachment to a mother-in-law, but you see, in her heart, she was and remained a Moabiteess. And when Naomi confronted her with the consequences of what it means to follow her into the land of Israel, then Orpah chose her people, and chose. Her gods. And then we read remarkably in verse 14 of chapter 1 And Orpah kissed her mother in law, but Ruth clave unto her. This is one of those places in Scripture, again, where we see that incredibly important word, but the but of God's good pleasure. The bud of God's sovereignty. But Ruth, who was by nature no different than Orpah. Ruth clave unto her. As it were, she clung to her mother-in-law. And Naomi said, behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back unto her people, and to her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Putting pressure on Ruth do likewise. Now it could be that Naomi already had detected the fear of God in Ruth, because it's evident that Ruth was a woman who had been regenerated by God's Spirit and here she is putting her to the test. Then finally Ruth opens her mouth and she said, entreat me not to leave thee. Stop pressuring me to leave you or to return from following after thee. For where thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. So what's beautiful Is that what comes out? It wasn't just her attachment to Naomi. And she said, I want to be where you, wherever you are, I want to be. But then she progresses. And I want your people to be my people. But most importantly, I want your God to be my God. You see, that was the ultimate reason, the compelling reason for her choice an intense yearning for the God of Naomi, also to be her God." What a beautiful evidence, congregation, of the regenerating and renewing work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a sinner. She was no different than Orpah. They were the same two Moabitish girls. And here we see God makes a difference where there was no difference by nature. That's the significance of that word, but. We find it in Ephesians, but God who is, he says, you were dead in sin and trespasses, but God who is great in mercy. And ultimately, that's the story of every believer's life. By the grace of God, you are a believer. There's only one reason you are a believer. It's not because of superior qualities. You and I are no different than the mass of humanity, born and conceived in sin. But, but God, God has sovereignly dealt with your soul, sovereignly dealt with my soul, as he did here with Ruth, the Moabites. But there is more to that little word but. It wasn't just her intense yearning after Israel's God, this intense yearning after God. And by the way, that is such an essential fruit of The grace of God. David mentions it in Psalm 42 as a heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. I see the mark of saving grace is that we do not just desire the benefits of salvation. True believers are not heaven seekers, they are God seekers. It is God they desire. It is God they must have. It is God that Ruth yearned for. She wanted that God to be her God. But there's more behind it, because behind it is, is the Lord's good pleasure. God executing His eternal sovereign purpose by means of Ruth. The eternal plan of redemption is being executed right here with this unlikely candidate. Who would have ever thought it out of this messy situation that Limelech and Aomai got themselves into? Have a story that is stained by sin and divine judgment. This Moabitish girl, this Moabitish girl, one of God's elect. A trophy of God's amazing grace. I am found of them. The Lord says in Isaiah 65 verse 1, I am found of them that sought me not. That's the story of every believer. I am found of them that sought me not. And then the story progresses now they have come back to Bethlehem and Naomi says don't call me Naomi anymore call me Merah the Lord has dealt bitterly with me and there they are Naomi and Ruth the two of them destitute utterly destitute They've been reduced to the poor there was only one way they could survive is that they had to live from handouts and one thing they could do is they could go to the local field of a farmer, because God's law had stipulated that the farmers in Israel had to purposely leave things in the field so that the poor could come and could glean them. And so we read of that in verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him, in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. But I read verse 2 to you. What's what's remarkable is that chapter 2 begins with a statement about Boaz, a person that Ruth did not know, was not acquainted with at all, didn't even know there was such a man as Boaz the chapter begins, and Naomi had a kinsman, a relative of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. This is by the Holy Spirit's direction, because what that highlights, congregation, that even though it is called the book of Ruth, it is Boaz who is the main figure in this entire story. It is Boaz through whom Ruth the Moabitess will be incorporated into the household of God, into the family of Israel. It is Boaz, this man with his extraordinary credentials, a mighty man of wealth. It is Boaz who would be God's chosen instrument to bring redemption to Ruth and also to Naomi, through which everything that Naomi had lost through sin, everything would be restored through this man, Boaz. Interestingly, the name Boaz means, in him is strength. Again, that's not arbitrary, because Boaz in this story is a wonderful figure who represents really the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the greater Boaz, of whom God's word says, I have laid help upon one that is mighty. Boaz, in him there is strength. But Ruth knows nothing of this. So she goes her way. She's not familiar with the area. She doesn't know any of the farmers. She doesn't know which land belongs to which farmer. And she sees a field. And she sees men laboring in that field. It's the beginning of barley harvest. And so she decides to step on this field that says, And she went, verse 3, and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Moaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. Her hap That's a very old English word. Today we would say, purely by chance. Arbitrarily, she decided to enter that field. It was like a, a multiple choice situation for her. And she decided, well... I might as well walk onto this field. It was her hap. The congregation, if ever we see that, the Lord directs the steps of His children, we see it here in this particular situation. She had no way of knowing that she was walking onto the field of this Boaz. A Boaz, a man who belonged to the kindred, the family of Elimelech. And here you have an example, congregation, of what seems to us to be a minor event can have profound consequences. And we need to remember that also in our own personal lives. We do not always understand why certain things happen. We do not always understand why providentially we are directed one way or the other. And Ruth had no way of knowing what this simple decision to walk onto the field of Boaz, what the consequences would be for her and for Naomi, but far more than that. This was a pivotal moment in the history of redemption. The entire work of redemption depended on that moment. That step, that step had eternal consequences. That step onto the field of Boaz would result in the birth of Christ in the fullness of time. So we could say that all of redemption, all of God's plan regarding the salvation of sinners all depended on that moment. Her hap was to light on the field of Boaz. Again, we don't have much time for detail here, but what an unforgettable experience that became for Ruth the Moabite's. You can imagine that she was somewhat reluctant. She was a stranger. And she quietly went her way and began to glean in the field of Boaz. She never expected that the farmer, the owner of the land, that he would actually take notice of her. And he does. He finds out from his men who this woman is. And he makes the connection immediately. And he goes to her and he says, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by mine maidens. And I've charged the young men not to touch you. When you're thirsty, go get some drink, go to the vessels, whatever you need. And Ruth is overwhelmed, she can't believe it. She can't believe that this man would actually speak to her. And it says she fell down on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why? Why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? She was well aware of who she was. She was well aware of the fact that she was a Moabites. She understood. And I believe that that's also because of the grace of God, you see. When the grace of God enters our heart, it becomes real to us who we really are. We come to grips with who we really are in the sight of God. And she says, why have I found grace in thine eyes? Congregation, that's that holy amazement every believer can identify with. I would venture to say, if you cannot identify with this, you have never experienced the grace of God. Well, when that becomes real to you, who you are in yourself, and when then you experience that God deals graciously with you, then you cannot but say, Lord, why? Why have I found grace in thine eyes? That thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger, see I am a sinner. That's the amazing grace that John Newton sings about. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Why me, Lord? Why? Why hast thou been mindful of me? There you see, The reason she so marveled at Boaz, so marveled at what he said to her, was against the background of who she knew herself to be. And so Christ will never be precious to us. We will never adore Him. We will never, never delight ourselves in Him unless we see Him against the background of who we are and remain in ourselves. Then he invites her to join them for a meal. He gives her a place among the reapers. And only that, he reaches her the parched corn. He goes out of his way to communicate to this woman that he is favorably inclined towards her. He goes out of his way, as it were, to win the heart of this Moabitish girl. Then she comes... She comes back, and Nehemiah is surprised because she comes back with a lot more than she had expected her daughter-in-law to bring home. He says, where hast thou gleaned today, and where wroughtest thou? Blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. And then she showed her mother-in-law with whom she had wrought and said, and here comes a key phrase, the man's name with whom I wrought today is Boaz." Harrogation, what that meant for Naomi is almost impossible to express. When she heard that name, all of a sudden, everything began to become clear to her. When she heard that name, there was hope in her soul. And then she realized that even though the Almighty had dealt bitterly with her, that he had not forsaken her, oh, she marveled at the fact that her daughter-in-law would end up on the field of Boaz, a man she knew so well. And immediately you could see her mind begins to spin. Oh, blessed be he of the Lord, she says, who has not left off his kindness to the living and the dead. The man is near of kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. And you see, Naomi knew her Bible well. She knew the Scriptures well. She knew the passages that deal with what we call the levirate marriage. The marriage of a brother-in-law to the widow of his deceased brother. Turn, let's just read about that in our Bibles in Luke 20, 11, Sorry, Leviticus 25. Please turn there with me. Leviticus 25 verse 25 and 49 that addresses this. Leviticus 25 verse 25. If thy brother be waxen poor and has sold away some of his possessions... And if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. Luke 20, or Leviticus 25 verse 49. Either his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or any that is nigh of kin unto him of his family may redeem him, or if he be able, he may redeem it himself." So combined with the other passage that speaks of a brother-in-law or a relative marrying the widow, all of this comes together in Naomi's mind as she realizes there is hope for me. There is hope for my house. There is hope for my family. Here is a man who is qualified to be our Redeemer. Here is a man who can restore to us all that we have lost. Now now Naomi begins to act accordingly, and she, she arrives at the proper conclusion of God's providential direction. She says to Ruth, it is good, my daughter, that thou go out with his maidens, and that they meet thee not in any other field so she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of the barley harvest and of the wheat harvest and dwelt with her mother-in-law. And so Naomi, when Ruth told her everything, everything she experienced on that field, what Boaz had said to her, how Boaz had treated her, oh, Naomi was so encouraged because not only was Boaz the potential redeemer, it was so obvious that he was favorably inclined towards this woman. That brings us to chapter three. And it's very unusual. The advice that Naomi gave to Ruth was unusual. And let's just quickly say this. The advice that Naomi gave to Ruth, now that the harvest was over, she realized something needed to happen. And so she gives her advice to make known to Boaz her desire to be redeemed by him. And she says to him, spread thy skirt over me. And then the argument she uses, for thou art a near kinsman. She reminds him of who he is. She reminds him of his special role as redeemer, as kinsman. And again, there is a a rich spiritual lesson here that I can only be brief about. What a beautiful illustration of how we must come to Christ. We must remind him of who he is, and he delights in that. He loves to be reminded of the fact that he is redeemer, that he is our near kinsman. He loves to be reminded of all that God's Word tells us about Him. He delights in it when, as sinners, we cast ourselves at His blessed feet and say, Oh, spread Thy skirt over me, cover me with Thy righteousness. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, Thou art our near kinsman. Redeem also such a one as I am. And she does not do this in vain. Then in verse 11, he utters these beautiful words. And now my daughter, he says, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest. What a wonderful statement. What wonderful words from the lips of Boaz. What music in the ears of Ruth. He says, Ruth, everything that you desire of me, everything you require of me, I will do it. You can count on it, fear not. There's only one obstacle. It was a nearer kinsman that had to be dealt with. But again, the greater Boaz, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his precious word, he says to sinners, he's sinner, if you come to me, if you take refuge to me, if you desire to be covered by my skirt, if you desire to be covered by my righteousness, oh, I promise you, I will do all that you require of me. All of it. Because he is a complete Savior who is committed to save his people to the utter, uttermost. Then when she comes home, Naomi asked the question. He said, who? I tell my daughter. Are you still Ruth the Moabite's? Or are you Ruth, the wife of Boaz? And then she comes home with six measures of barley that Boaz had given her. Again, a gift to encourage her, to encourage her, uh, to, re- to just reaffirm his inclination towards her. Six measures of barley. Why not seven? As a promise that more was coming the seventh measure of barley would be coming. Oh, and Eomai is so encouraged. She said, sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall. For the man will not be in rest until he have finished the thing this day. And we know that after this encounter, he goes straight to the city. Boaz knew what had to be done to accomplish this, to keep his word. And again, when we project this onto the Lord Jesus Christ as the greater Boaz, oh, that was his commitment. He said, how am I straightened till it will be accomplished? He did not rest until he finished the work the Father gave him to do. Oh, when he came into the world, he was very clear about why he came. That's why he rebuked his parents as a 12-year-old. He said, wished you not, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Did you not know why I have come into the world? And so the greater Boaz, oh, he has kept his word. He has finished what he came to do and therefore can offer us a full and free salvation. And then we go to chapter 4. Then we see how at the gate, that was the public place, that's where all legal transactions took place, in the presence of 10 elders. And he goes to this transaction and he confronts the nearer kinsman. There was a closer relative who by law had first claim on all of this. And so, you see, Boaz knew, and that's the important, because we can, we can allegorize about his nearer kinsmen. That's not the point here. The point is there was a legal obstacle that had to be removed. And so Boaz knew he could not redeem Ruth until the requirements of the law were met. That's what Jesus did as the greater Boaz. He knew that in order to redeem us, The claims of the law had to be fulfilled, all of it. And that's what he did by his perfect life and by his perfect sacrifice. And so that's what Boaz now does at the gate. And of course, initially, this nearer kinsman said, yeah, of course, I'm interested in another piece of land. But wait a minute, says Boaz, but remember that it includes marrying Ruth the Moabite the widow of Malon. And so this man wanted the benefits of redemption, but he did not want the responsibility of it. He said, no, thank you. I don't want to mar my name. I don't want to jeopardize my own inheritance. And he walks away from me. He has to take off his shoe to indicate that he gave up the rights to his claim to be the redeemer of Naomi's property. And now that that obstacle is out of the way, Boaz makes the public declaration. Moreover, he says, Ruth the Moabite's, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife. Oh, what an amazing moment. Ruth the Moabite's the daughter of Lot, coming from a land where Chemosh was worshipped. Ruth, a woman who was subject to the curse of God's law that a Moabite could not enter the congregation of the Lord until the 10th generation. At this very moment, she is now incorporated into the household of God, all because of Boaz, All because of the fact that he was willing to forsake his own reputation. He was willing to have his own name marred. Because he loved this woman. And he redeemed her. And because he redeemed her, the curse was removed. And she was now part of the household of God. Which is exactly what Christ came to do in the fullness of time. That's why he was made a curse, so that we could be delivered from that curse. And so Boaz literally was the curse remover for Ruth. He removed everything that stood in the way. And she was now legitimately a woman of Israel because of what Boaz had done for her. In Psalm 103 verse 4 it says, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. And if there were moments where she would doubt it, all she had to do was look at her husband. Whenever she looked at him, she knew Because of him, I am now an Israelite. Her people are now my people. And her God is now my God. Boaz was the warranty that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was also her God. And then we see finally, I have to be brief here, how that union is a fruitful union. And so it is, because this union of Boaz and his bride is symbolic of the union between Christ and his church. And that union is always a fruitful union. And so the Lord, again, that wonderful covenant name, the Lord gave her conception. Again, that's an amazing statement that tells us a great deal about conception that I cannot go into, but this is God's work. Every conception is God's work. Every conception, God creates a new life in the womb of a woman. But here, it is the covenant God who's at work. It is the covenant God who brings about a conception that would result in another conception in the fullness of time. And the angel would come to Mary and say, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. And so not only was Ruth stepping onto the field of Boaz, a critical moment in redemption history, what happened in her womb, the Lord gave her conception. Again, the whole plan of redemption pivoted on that conception. Congregation, we need to understand that you and I are here today because God purposed your and my existence. God gave conception to our mothers, to our grandmothers. He gave conception because He purposed to bring forth you for His purposes. That's why abortion is so evil. Even early abortions. Because when God gives conception, He creates a human being. In this case, it was Obed, whose name means servant, he that serves. And what joy there was! When Obed was born, what joy there was for Naomi, all the people realized it, how God had redeemed this woman. Look at Ruth 4 verse 11, read with me in your Bibles. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, we are witness, and they, oh this is, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm. This is before Obed was born, but I want to read it anyway. Verse 11 and 12 The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel, and do thou worthily in Ephrata, and be famous in Bethlehem. Those two names that are so significant when it comes to the story of the birth of Christ. And let thy house be like the house of Phares, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. And then when Obed is born, and when Obed is laid into the arms of the, O oh my, oh, the people rejoiced and said, "He is unto thee the restorer of thy life." The tangible evidence of their redemption, the tangible evidence of God's favor. Oh, we could say that Obed was the seventh measure of barley, the seventh measure of barley. Oh, what a joy unspeakable joy this was for Naomi she was well aware that through her sin and her husband's sin they've lost everything and through Boaz everything they lost they received again and that's why the father sent his son into the world to redeem fallen sons and daughters of Adam In Adam, we've lost everything. But through Christ, we can receive everything we have lost in Adam. And then it ends with the genealogy that brings us to David. And we find that same genealogy in Matthew 1, verses 3 through 6. It begins with Pharaoh's who was born out of an illegitimate relationship. And it ends with David, the man after God's own heart. And yet, in Matthew 1 we read, and David begets Solomon of her who was the wife of Urias. Even that was stained with sin, but that's the bottom line congregation, and hopefully I'm getting this through to you. The beauty of all of this is We see it again, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And it's against a black background of sin that the grace of God shines in all of its beauty and in all of its glory. So Matthew 1 confirms that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost, He came to be the savior of sinners. That's why no one should despair of the mercy of God. If there was grace for Tamar, there's grace for Rahab, and grace for Ruth the Moabitess. And the gospel tells us that Christ came, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation, That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Oh congregation, what do you think of such a Savior? What do you think of this greater Boaz? Who has done everything to accomplish redemption. Has this Boaz become precious to you? Has Christ become to you the chiefest among ten thousand? That's the evidence of the saving grace of God. The saving grace of God will make this Christ precious. So precious that we will say, give me this Jesus or else I die. Ruth knew Boaz alone was able to redeem her. And he did not put her to shame. And so Christ will not put to shame those that seek Him out and that say, O oh Lord Jesus, I am a wretched sinner. Cover me with Thy skirt. Clothe me with Thy righteousness. And He promises to you in the gospel, sinner, I will do all that Thou requirest of me. Amen. Our gracious God, we marvel at thy grace. Our words are so inadequate to express the wonder of it all. O oh, the greater Boaz, our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, our full and perfect Redeemer, who has done a complete work in the fullness of time. O oh, Lord, we pray that we too would not be able to find rest until we know that we too are covered and closed with his righteousness until we know that this precious Christ is also our Redeemer, the willing and able Savior of sinners. This misses with our blessing. Bless the instruction given to our dear children and grandchildren. And gather with us in this evening hour. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.